save, and encountering Jesus is encountering the one who earned salvation for us. Let us pray. Father, remind us today of the gospel. Remind us today of our need for Jesus. Remind us today that, that you declared that Jesus would come even in the Old Testament and that he has come and we live today in light of his death, burial, and resurrection, ascension, and reign in heaven, looking forward to that day that he will come again and complete that which he has begun. Father, thank you for the gospel. May you apply it to our hearts today. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn to Mark chapter 1 as we read the first eight verses of the second gospel, as it is called. Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt, belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Today, as Derry pointed out, we will begin this series in Mark, Encountering Jesus. And before we begin, Mark, I think it's helpful for us just to take a look at the four Gospels overall. A journalist submitted a story to her, to her editor, and she was rejected. The editor wrote back, your content is too general. Choose an angle for a story and be more specific. The journalist getting this rebuke was crushed, hurt, but she learned a valuable lesson about choosing an angle to a story. Start with the big picture. Then consider the different components of the story and then choose a facet or an angle of that story to report. The lesson that this particular journalist learned about choosing an angle is one way, I think a helpful way, for us to understand the relationships between the four Gospels that we have in the Bible. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three Gospels are called synoptic Gospels. That term synoptic refers to these Gospels being a summary or being a common view of the chronology of all that Jesus said and did, his life and his ministry. Then when we get to the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John, it's more thematic and theological. Looking at the synoptic Gospels, we we see that they provide parallel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. It's generally considered by scholars that the Gospel of Mark was the first written. When taking the Synoptic Gospels into account, 
we find that these parallel accounts sometimes add some things and other Gospels might not add a particular account. In other words, they differ. It's interesting that 97% of the Gospel of Mark is found in the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew and Luke often cover different accounts or aspects of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. And I suggest these differences in the gospel accounts are actually helpful in this way. First of all, we need to affirm that the gospel writers were infallible instruments of God to communicate exactly what God wanted written down to reveal his word. Second, there, there was a common knowledge of or oral tradition and just a very brief span of time of Jesus' life and ministry that the gospel writers drew from under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, God sovereignly used each of the gospel writers, each of the evangelists to address certain things, to address certain groups of people that were in a particular historical context, taking into consideration the evangelist personality and life experience, God sovereignly working and using all of that to communicate in the four Gospels exactly what he wants us to know about the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, we just look at Matthew. Matthew focuses very much on the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah, and Matthew is written more from a Jewish perspective. Lots of Old Testament quotes in Matthew. We look to Luke. Luke is part one of a two-part series, the second part being the book of Acts. And Luke largely is focused on, on the Gentile world. And then take John. John is not synoptic because it's not a parallel account of or common view of the chronology of Jesus' life, but it is more thematic and theological, declaring the glories of, of a high Christology of the promised Messiah. And then we get to Mark, which is our focus in these coming months. Mark can be understood as being very much about discipleship, how believers are to follow Jesus And how believers are to follow Jesus in the midst of a crisis. There is a historical context to Mark that is important for us to understand that we might grasp all that God has for us in this gospel. Each individual gospel gives us a different angle or perspective of the life and ministry of Jesus. As we turn specifically, and, and as we take the four Gospels together, it's like looking at different sides of a three-dimensional box. When we take Mark and Matthew and Luke and John and see them as a whole, we have a fuller picture. We have the precise picture God would want us to have the life and ministry of Jesus. So as we go to Mark specifically, we want to look at three things today. Mark's aim, message, and beginning. First, let's consider 
what is Mark aiming at? He's, he's writing about discipleship. He's writing to believers, obviously, and there is a particular historical context there. Well, for those of us who enjoy the shooting sports, that is, shooting a bow and arrow or shooting a firearm, the goal is to take, and take aim at a target and then not only to hit the target, but to hit the bullseye of the target. That's the goal. And Mark's aim is obviously not shooting an arrow or a firearm at a paper target, but he does take aim at a target of sorts in addressing believers in a particular historical context. And unlike the shooting sports, which is to, to put a projectile at the bullseye in a target and hopefully it stops there, Mark's aim even goes beyond his original audience. Mark's aim actually is aimed at us today. There is no evidence in the gospel of Mark, and by the way, Matthew and Luke, for that matter, pointing to exactly or naming the author, and Mark doesn't name, Mark's gospel doesn't name the author, but the early church fathers and most scholars today would attribute the writing of Mark to John Mark. He's the author of the second gospel, is the consensus. And there, there is one veiled reference in the gospel of Mark that might lead us to see that indeed John Mark is referenced in the gospel itself. If you've got your Bibles open, turn to Mark 14. Look at verses 51 through 52. This is the account. I once heard a sermon on this. Uh, I think the sermon title was, He, he Ran Away Naked. Um, uh, Richie Sessions preached that. In fact, he did a missions conference here. Preached it at Presbytery. Never forgot that sermon. This is the account of the young man who followed Jesus from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was, he was uh, dressed only in a loincloth. Don't ask me why. The scriptures don't tell us, but that's, that's what the scriptures say. This is all took place the night before his crucifixion. And after Jesus was arrested, the guards seized him. And apparently when they seized him, they, they had hold of a part of that loincloth. <laughs> and this young man escaped and he ran away naked. And you may be asking, that doesn't sound very much like evidence that, that Mark might be the author of the, the gospel according to Mark. But it's interesting. Some commentators would suggest that indeed Mark is the author and that young man was Mark because Mark is the only gospel that has this account. And out of modesty, Mark decided not to name himself as the one who ran away naked. Take that for what you will. But some would see that as some internal evidence in the gospel. The author was taken to be John Mark, Barnabas's cousin, who accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Then you may remember Paul and Barnabas had a falling out. They had a disagreement. And... Paul dismissed John Mark. Now, later, their relationship was reconciled. But that is believed to be the writer of the Gospel of Mark. John Mark was, an, uh, was not an apostle. He was not an eyewitness of all that Jesus said and did. But he was a close associate of the apostle Peter, 
who obviously was an eyewitness to all that Jesus said and did. Thus, Mark's apostolic authority is grounded in Peter. And their relationship really is central to, to, to understanding the context that God sovereignly used to bring about the writing of the gospel of Mark. Just to emphasize, these, these books of the Bible just don't just appear out of nowhere. That God is sovereign. God is using historical context as part of his tool to bring about a book of the Bible, and Mark is no, no exception. There's a context that God sovereignly uses. And most scholars agree that both the Apostle Peter and Mark, who basically some believe is, 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 is uh, Peter's writer, that Peter and Mark are in Rome, and in fact, they would say that they were probably in Rome as early as A.D. 40 and as late as A.D. 67, and Peter even beyond that. You may remember that, that, that Peter was martyred in A.D. 64-67, presumably during Nero's persecution. Nero, the Roman emperor, lived in Rome, A.D. 54-67. That was the, the spance of his reign, and he died in 67. So I believe that the historical context of Mark is very much rooted in Rome during Nero's reign and persecution. For example, William Hendrickson believes that, that the reason that Mark wrote this gospel was to satisfy an urgent request from the people of Rome for Mark to write down Peter's sermons. And Hendrickson says that he stated that what Mark wrote down was just not for the Romans. Hendrickson says its message was, is, and is going to be meaningful for everybody, including you and me today. Another commentator, William Lane, believes, like Hendrickson, that Mark's gospel was mostly derived from Peter's sermon and was written in Rome primarily to Christians in that city responding to a particular crisis. And Lane very ably cites that the particular crisis was the persecution of Christians by Nero after Nero made Christians the scapegoat for the great fire that took place in A.D. 64 that consumed the city of Rome. The church was then, as, as Lane writes, introduced to suffering and martyrdom. Mark's task, writes Lane, was the projection of the Christian faith in a context of suffering and martyrdom. The gospel is a pastoral response to this critical demand. So Mark's aim, Mark's purpose, was to exhort the church to respond to this crisis at hand by embracing a radical discipleship to which the Lord Jesus Christ had called them. A, a discipleship that is characterized by Jesus when he said, in following me, you are to take up your own cross and follow me. Though we do not face persecution like the original audience of Mark's gospel suffering under this, 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 this terrible reign of Nero, 
Yet that radical call to discipleship is as true for us today as it was to them in the day that Mark penned the gospel. Mark's aim, follow Jesus, take up your cross, and follow him. Second, Mark's message is good news, is the good news of the gospel. I was listening to the World and Everything in It podcast, and on Fridays, at the toward the end of the podcast, they, they go through listener comments. And this one listener wrote into World, and by the way, uh, World and Everything in It is the podcast of the of the World Magazine uh, group, and so one of these individuals or one of these listeners wrote in and said, "Hey, listen, I really love the way that that you report uh, from a biblical perspective all that is happening in the world, but it seems like all of your reporting is bad news. Can we have just a little bit of good news?" And so they responded to that letter in a very gracious way. But the reality is, it's not world's fault that most of what they report is bad news. There's a lot of bad news. And if you didn't report bad news, there wouldn't be a whole lot to report, one might think. And so that got me to thinking about the fact that there is so much bad news around. We hear it all the time. We see it. Maybe we live it. All the more, we have the wonderful message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All the more, we should be living in light of it and heralding it to the world around us. That Jesus saves. That is really good news. Mark tells us in verse 1 that his message is about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what is really interesting is that this word gospel or evangel, it's euangelion in the Greek, it's not unique to Christianity. The concept of gospel was used by both pagan and Jewish cultures of the day. Gospel was used in the context of Roman emperor worship, if you can possibly get your your head around that. And it was related to festivals being held to celebrate the past, the past birthdays or past ascensions of, of emperors. And so they would send out a report, an evangel. They would send out joyful tidings that this festival was going to be held, commemorating this historical event that took place that had brought about a new situation. According to Lane, the, the, the pagan, that is the non-biblical use of euangelion, is primarily focused on the past, what had happened. When we come to the Old Testament, we see this word, this good news, this message, not in the Greek word, but in the equivalent Hebrew word, being, being declared. We think of Isaiah 40 and verse 9, Isaiah 52 and verse 7, an announcing the, the, the good news that God is going to comfort and God is going to redeem His, His people, that there is going to be a, a Messiah coming in the future. So what's interesting about this 
word and its uh, Hebrew equivalent being used in the Old Testament is that it's not backward-looking, it's forward-looking. It's what's going to happen in the future. In fact, it's in the Old Testament, it's focused on what Mark is reporting that is going to happen as soon as John the Baptist leaves the scene, that the Messiah is coming. So the term gospel in Mark 1.1 should be understood as an event that introduces a new situation, a cataclysmic change, the good news, the joyful tidings of God saving his people through the promised Messiah. The promised Messiah that he, the promise he made in the Old Testament being fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then that, that future completion of all that Jesus came to do. He accomplished everything, but our salvation will one day be complete when Jesus returns and brings completion, consummation to all things. But the term gospel not only means the message, the content of the gospel, it also refers to the heralding or the preaching or the proclamation of the gospel itself. So not only does Mark say this is the message of the gospel, but he exhorts the church to be about the business of proclaiming it to the world. Evangelism and discipleship, again, go together here in the Gospel of Mark as well as in the Scriptures as a whole. So at the very beginning of Mark, we find a high Trinitarian Christology. Jesus, truly human and truly divine. He identifies Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, set apart to redeem God's people and Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is a Messiah who accomplished salvation. He is also fully, truly God. And if he's not truly God, then the claims he made would be false. But Mark says he is both truly man and truly God. His work atones for the sin of God's people. Mark's message is the good old gospel message and in case you have forgotten, we sang the good old gospel message uh, just before the sermon. We have heard the joyful sound. What is that joyful sound? Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. Again, joyful tidings. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Bear the news to every land. Climb the steeps and cross the waves. Onward, tis our Lord's command. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Both the content of the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel is what Mark is addressing. It's what we sang about even in that first stanza of this hymn, We Have Heard the Joyful Sound. And then thirdly, Mark, Mark's beginning is, is, is unique. We've, we've looked at Mark's message, we've, we've looked at Mark's aim, and now we want to look at this, this beginning. How a story begins often clues us to the themes that will be unfolded throughout that story. And, and, and some stories begin 
actually pointing to the very end of the story. Let me just give you an example. The movie Saving Private Ryan, yes, it's a tough movie, and, but it's also, I think, a very, um, I would say, meaningful movie, even though it is about war. It's about the D-Day invasion on June, in June of 1944. But Saving Private Ryan is a movie, so it's not based on a true story, but it certainly has accuracy in many respects with regards to that fateful day and that fateful period in World War II. But the movie begins with an old Private Ryan with his family at Normandy there at the U.S. Cemetery, and old Ryan now years after he served in the D-Day invasion, finds one particular monument that's marking a grave, and it was the grave of Captain Miller. And as this old veteran kneels down at the grave marker, you know those white markers? I don't know how anyone could go to Normandy, go to that cemetery and not be moved. But as this old Ryan is kneeling down, he begins to remember that his life was saved by many giving their lives for his, including Captain Miller. And he begins to recall all the events that happened, and so the movie goes back to the D-Day invasion of June 1944. And at the end of Ryan's remembrances, they are on a bridge where all the men that were tasked to rescue Private Ryan had died, and only one was still alive, but he was in the process of dying. And the last words that Captain Miller said to young Ryan, who would go home, alive from the war, Captain Miller said to Ryan, earn it. And that beginning of the movie, as Ryan is there and recalling all these events, clues us in on the major theme of Saving Private Ryan, and that is one life being rescued at the expense of many. Now we turn to how Mark began his account. Mark begins at the beginning with, uh, well, actually, let me go back and compare. When we compare Mark's beginning with Matthew, we see something very different. Matthew begins at the beginning with Jesus' genealogy. Matthew goes all the way back to Abraham and works his way forward. And then we have the birth, we have the birth narratives of both John the Baptist and Jesus. When we look at the Gospel of Luke, Luke begins with the birth narratives of both John and, and Jesus. But when we get to Mark, Mark begins not at the beginning with a genealogy, not even with the birth of Jesus. He, and he doesn't even begin, begin with the birth of John. He begins with the ministry of John the Baptist who prepared the way 
for Jesus, by bearing witness to Jesus. Though Mark's beginning seems really odd, certainly as compared to the other Gospels, it's not an accident. Like Saving Private Ryan, Mark's beginning signals a major theme that is going to unfold in the pages of this Gospel message. Bearing witness to Jesus who gave his one life to rescue many. In verse 1, when Mark writes the beginning of the gospel, he's not referring to the beginning of the gospel according to Mark, that is, to the actual gospel itself. He's not even referring to the gospel content, that is, the, the gospel message concerning Jesus. Rather, when, when Mark writes the beginning, he's referring to the beginning of the preparation for the coming Messiah, Jesus, in the ministry of John the Baptist. Mark begins in verses 2 and 3 with, with two prophecies concerning the forerunner, the one who would come before Messiah. Mark quotes Malachi 3, 1 and verse 2. He speaks of my messenger, who is the messenger of the covenant, who is called to prepare the way for Messiah's coming. And then Mark quotes Isaiah 40 in verse 3 in verse 3 of the gospel, uh, chapter 1. He describes the one who will prepare the way as one coming out of or from the wilderness. Mark uses these references to show that the messenger who comes from the wilderness will bring a message of comfort and deliverance for God's people. God's people who are in bondage to the ultimate wilderness, the wilderness of a sin-soaked heart. what Isaiah declares is that this, this deliverance will be pardoning their sins, the promise of pardon. Malachi attributes the role of the messenger to the prophet Elijah. And it's interesting that in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 4, Jesus identifies John the Baptist as a fulfillment of Elijah coming in terms of Malachi chapter 4. When we look at, the, at, at John the Baptist, we see that his dress, especially the belt that, that Mark references in verse 6, that belt that was very significant to the prophetical office, that, that John's dress, the belt that he wore, his diet, his life in the wilderness, all of that was in line in the Old Testament prophetical office and especially in line with the prophet Elijah. The wilderness plays a central role in our understanding of John's ministry. God's people in the first exodus went into the wilderness where God made, made a way through this unforgiving, merciless, barren land destined for the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And Mark quotes Isaiah 40. And indicates that, that John is announcing the coming of a new exodus. But this new exodus will not be through the unforgiven, bearing, physical land. But will deal with the obstacle 
and barren, sinful heart. The voice crying in the wilderness is, is, is not a weeping voice. It's a preaching voice. It's a declarative voice. It's a proclaiming voice. In verses 4 through 5, John's ministry is presented, his preaching is characterized by calling sinners to repentance and baptizing them in preparation for Messiah's coming. The text tells us that, that John came and his ministry is centered on a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this doesn't mean Christian baptism. John baptized with water only. But the sacrament that Jesus instituted, and John references this in verse 8, that true Christian baptism will be with water signifying the Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, John's baptism was preparatory. It, it was calling the people to, to prepare their wilderness hearts, their sinful hearts, by being repentant and humble, waiting for the one to come who would cleanse their hearts from sin. And we see the hope of this new exodus, that there will be people coming and finding the cleansing that is promised by the one to come in verse 5, where we read, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem sought John's baptism in the river Jordan. That is a clue that there is going to be a people that will come under the gracious reign of Messiah and find their hearts cleansed. That what John's preparatory baptism pointed to would come to fulfillment in the one to come. And John preached that this new exodus would break forth by the one who would come after him, saying in verse 7, who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Verse 7 teaches several things. First, that the one for whom John is preparing the way is divine. He, he quotes Isaiah 40 and verse 3 in Mark 1, verse 3. He is the Lord. But also the one who is to come that will safely take Israel through this new exodus and deal with their hearts is a man who wears sandals. Again, affirming the true deity and the true humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7 also shows us that the one coming is, the, is greater. The greatness of the one to come is, is demonstrated by, by John describing himself as, as being unworthy to untie the straps of this one's sandals. And of course, this alludes to the custom where a guest would come into a home and the lowliest servant would wash the, take the sandals off and wash the feet of that guest. And John is saying, I'm not as worthy as the lowliest servant to untie Jesus' sandals and wash his feet. Mark's beginning with John's ministry sets forth an expectation of encountering the mightier one, Jesus, who was promised in Isaiah 40 and Malachi 4 that one would come to prepare the way for this greater one to come for the purpose of dealing with the sinful heart 
the ultimate wilderness. Mark brings us to the question, have we encountered Jesus who is mighty to save? It is my hope that as we uh, go through this gospel, that each of us would encounter Jesus by coming to Jesus with John's humility, realizing that we're unworthy, and that we would heed John's preaching. He preached then, as he preaches now, that encountering Jesus means we come with humble hearts, repentant hearts, prepared to receive all that Jesus has for us. But we don't come like the one coming in John's day who was looking forward to Messiah. We come as one coming to Messiah who has already accomplished salvation. He promises forgiveness of sins. And when we encounter Jesus, are, are we trusting him for that? I alluded to the movie Saving Private Ryan just a few moments ago. I want to go back to the last words that Captain Miller spoke to Private Ryan. As Captain Miller was dying on this bridge, Ryan was the only one left. He was going to be rescued by U.S. forces, and he was going to live, though Captain Miller and many, and everyone else in, in the whole regiment or that went to save him had died. And on the battlefield dying, Captain Miller said to Ryan, earn it. In other words, what Miller was saying is that in light of all the men who died so you could go home, you better make your life count. And I want to ask a question today. How many of you, how many of us have struggled in living, feeling as though we have to earn it? The movie ends as it began, with an old private Ryan kneeling at that grave marker at Normandy, struggling with this question, have I earned it? Have I made good on the price that was paid for me to live? This is what Mark is about, though. This is what the gospel is about. That when we encounter Jesus, we are free and freed from ever struggling with that question, have I earned it? Have I done enough to get into heaven? And the reason we are freed from ever struggling with that question is because Jesus gave his one life to earn salvation for us, for the many. And as we go through Mark, may we encounter Jesus who earned it for us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your grace and for your mercy that we would 
consider the heart of the gospel message that Jesus saves, Jesus saves. That he has done everything that is necessary. He has earned everything that we could never earn. That we would have a life in heaven for the rest of eternity. And Father, I pray for anyone here today that might be struggling with that question, have I done enough, have I earned it? And maybe there are those here today that aren't even asking that question, they just simply don't care, haven't really thought about a need for a Savior. Father, would you be pleased to bring the gospel close to their hearts and their minds, and so work it to be your will that they might encounter the Lord Jesus, who has earned redemption for us. And I pray for those of us who know you, Lord, that we would daily seek to be humble and to be repentant and to encounter Jesus, this good news that indeed we are freed from sin, we, the bondage to sin. We are freed from this struggle of feeling like we have to be good enough to get into heaven. And we've been brought into a saving relationship and we're able to sing like that old hymn, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, he saved me. So do your good work of grace in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.